welcome to the EdTech Podcast. So much news this week, so I'll just get stuck in straight away. First up, next week on Tuesday at 4.30pm UK time, I'm hosting a bet chat on Twitter. You guys voted for this to be on personalised learning and AI over what can tech do for all schools. So there you have it. Twitter chat on personalised learning, hashtag bet chat, 4.30pm on Tuesday. I don't want to be tweeting to myself, so please do join me and let others know. Number two, this week I announced the lineup for the first ever The EdTech Podcast Live, which takes place on the 12th of October. This will feature none other than guests from previous episodes, including Tolu Oyanola, the Hackney Primary Computing Coordinator, Jen Lexman from Easy Peasy, with some exciting news from Oxford University, ICT Evangelist Joe Dale and Alex Flowers from the Victorian Albert Museum. The broad theme of the discussion will be on how to improve the dialogue between ed and tech to improve education innovation. And now we want your questions to the panel ahead of the event. So please tweet to hashtag edtechpod and we will start to collect these. So what did I just say in a really memorable format? The EdTech Podcast Live. Tweet your questions to hashtag edtechpod and do it now before you forget. Number three, this one's a massive shocker. I'm starting a newsletter and it's going to be the best newsletter ever featuring latest episode links, news and events and basically everything you listen to in this section and then forget. You should join. You can witness my everyday challenges with MailChimp on a regular basis. Uh, So check Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for the link which will reach you every Sunday. Number four, on that basis, as part of the EdTech Podcast launch party, our lovely friends at ELT Jam are offering three free half-day one-to-one workshops to help any EdTech types listening in to improve the experience that you are providing your learners. The type of workshop you might engage with could be problem to product, learner experience design or MVP development, where you identify your riskiest assumptions and how best to test them. Or you could come up with something completely bespoke to you. Interested? Email joe at eltjam.com to put your name in the hat and for more information on who they are, what they do and how they can help, visit www.eltjam.com forward slash welcome. And finally, EdTech Accelerator Emerge Education are hosting an open day next Tuesday. Tickets are on Eventbrite and in the show notes, so if you're an EdTech startup or teacherpreneur and interested in finding out more, do go and check that out. So phew, on to this week's episode finally and thanks to everyone who loved the Lightner episode. Great timing that that also fell during Slush Singapore. This week, a familiar name to many of you, it's Dr Rose Lukin from the UCL Knowledge Lab. Dr Rose is talking about personalised learning and AI, her journey into academia and what made it possible, why AI is yet to become exciting and what it will look like when it is exciting, why she doesn't believe in the singularity and what an exciting new UCL accelerator for edtechs looking to gain research knowledge might look like. The best part of this interview, in my opinion, is off record when we realised that during my own tenure at Sussex University, when lots of students protested over the demolition of a beloved building which used to house Radiohead by dumping wheelbarrows of soil outside of the Vice-Chancellor's office, of which I was witness but not party, Dr Rose Lukin was inside the very building as part of the VC's team. Mind-blowing stuff. Here we go, it's a goodie.
very sunny day today. I feel like I've fallen into this pattern of um, always talking about the weather. It's very British. It's very British, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) So uh, today I'm really thrilled to be um, sat with Rose Lukin. Uh, professor of the Learning Centre Design? or Professor of Learner Centre Design. Learner yeah. Centre Design at the UCL Institute of Education. And we're here at uh, Nesta's office in um, Chancery Lane. And um, it's been a long time coming, this podcast, because uh, we were sort of first introduced through a speaking arrangement you had at BET with um, McGraw-Hill Education and David Levin. And then uh, I think in the summer you were hosting one of EdTechX's um, field right. trips. And uh, on the bus, I just quickly dug out an old copy of um, TES and your article on AI just yeah. to you know, brush up on my on my knowledge of what you're doing. So what would be fantastic is if you could kick off just by giving a quick overview about what you do and uh, what you're up to these days as well. Yeah, that's my pleasure. So my background is in computer science and artificial intelligence, but as applied to education. So I did my degrees and PhD in a computer and cognitive science department and then moved into education. So obviously now I work at the Knowledge Lab, which is part of the Institute of Education, which is part of UCL. And prior to this, I did teach in schools and colleges. So I came from a teaching background and then looked at computer science and AI and then kind of came back to thinking about how you apply it. So I've always had an interest in how you use intelligent technology to help you build better educational technology systems but also how you use that to help you help other people to use education technology more effectively so it's not just about building systems it's also about helping people to use the technology that is available to them more effectively. So is that sort of the change management side of it so understanding the how to bring people around the idea that it can also be effective or? Yes, it can be part of that. I mean, the the message that we usually start with is for educators to think about the sort of learning experience they want to use the technology in. So not to start with the technology, uh, but to think about what kind of learning do I want to take place? Because that's much more within their expertise. That's what they're more naturally used to thinking about and talking about and then to kind of pin down so what's that going to be like what do you want it to be like what other resources are you going to use okay now let's look at how technology could support you do that more effectively so it's very much about mapping out resources and looking at where technology fits within that whole space in order to deliver the sort of teaching and learning experience the teacher wants to do and we find that more effective in getting people engaged in not feeling oh I don't know how to do this yeah so that they're more okay no I'm comfortable thinking about what it is I want to do and so in your kind of day-to-day research environment would you quite often be working alongside educators looking at how they do or don't engage with certain technologies I am so lucky I think I have the best job in the world because I get to do lots of different things but yes some of the time I may well be doing that Other times we're talking about how we can design some technology effectively. I do a lot of work these days with educational technology companies, large and small, looking at how, particularly at the moment, 
they might use some element of artificial intelligence to improve just part of what they're doing, not necessarily turning their whole thing into something that's an artificially intelligent system, but just using some of the things that we've learned to improve some element of the technology. But in general, working with educational technology businesses to look at how they can use the evidence that we've gathered in the last few decades about learning with technology, what works and what doesn't work. As a sort of summary, because obviously it's very hot at the moment in terms of, okay, you know, ed tech's been spoken about for a while, now it's all about the efficacy, how do you measure it, you know, so what, what have you found does have that sort of measurable aspect behind it that you could say, yeah, this really stands up? Is it as easy as that? It or? isn't as easy no. as that. So a while ago, 2012, we did a report for Nesta called Decoding Learning, and we very much looked at the evidence for efficacy there. And it's absolutely clear you can find brilliant examples of technology being used really effectively in terms of improving learning gains, because that's what a lot of people are interested in, but also in terms of improving really valuable skills like collaboration and problem solving and tapping into some of the sort of motivational factors. So trying to do across the piece, but a lot of the times it isn't effective. And so it's trying to understand when it's effective and when it's not. And it's not as simple as this technology works and this technology doesn't work. It's much more concerned with this technology works in this particular setting with this sort of learners when you're trying to achieve X. So yes, but it depends I'm afraid, is the answer. Yeah, to, on a whole raft of factors. Yes, yeah, absolutely. The environment, the and unfortunately, over the years, we as a community of researchers and, and beyond have not been good at recording some of the value, very valuable contextual data about the studies that have been done. So you simply don't know. So, okay, here's a study with a thousand learners and they did really well, but, but exactly what were those learners like? Mm-hmm. What was going on? What kind of context were they set in? Was the school in a poor area, a rich area? Was, do you see what I mean? Were they so we don't. pathway to success anyway. And, exactly. Yeah. So, and without that richer contextual information, you really can't say much about how repeatable mm-hmm those learning gains or improvements in skills or improvements in motivation might be across the board. And specifically on um, sort of learner analytics and I suppose aggregating that data picture of someone's progression through learning, how do you go back to some of the people that challenge that? So I've read a few Audrey Waters articles and you know I think I think she has an interesting overview of the kind of ed tech space anyway but Obviously, I think there are some people out there that look at learning analytics slightly sceptically in the sense that it's sort of an echo chamber. So every time you're you're sort of limited to this pathway that's set out, do you refute that or do you, you know, what what's your thoughts on, on that kind of argument? I think it's potentially really exciting what we could do with learning analytics. I don't think it's very exciting at the moment in the main. And it seems to me that a lot of things that are described as learning analytics are actually data analytics, and that can be useful, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. So if we were really looking at something that I would call learning analytics, it might, for example, be about unpacking a complex process like collaborative problem solving, which we have a project to do, and that means taking a huge range of different data sources and saying, okay, what do we know 
about the process of collaborative problem solving and what does this data tell us that we all, that that helps us to map out what we know is effective when it comes to say stages in collaborative problem solving or ways in which the social interactions work particularly well or ways in which the problem solving works well so i think you have to do what you would do with a well-designed research study when you're thinking about what you can get from analytics what's the question you really want to answer okay how do I probe my data to find that out? And I think at the moment, too much of what happens is, oh, we've got all this data. Oh, it could tell us this, it could tell us that. And that's actually not terribly useful. So I'm not kind of overboard, yes, it's a great thing. Mm -hmm. I think it could be really useful. And I think it could be a way of really scaling up a lot of the stuff we've done arti with artificial intelligence in the past. Say, for example, looking at the kinds of ways that you can model some of the very important skills such as metacognition by using signifiers in performance of a learner to get a better understanding of how that important skill is developing. Yeah. Now, we could design learning analytics to capture some of that. And that's one for me, it gets really exciting. So it's the quality of the learning analytics. Yeah, and don't tar all the technologies with the same brush. There's no. some out there that are bringing the, uh, the kind of median down, I suppose. But, exactly. Um, and I, I think my impression from talking to quite a lot of people in institutions trying to use data is that people are a little bit rabbit in the headlights mm. at the moment like we've got this big pressing problem you know I don't know students are dropping out or or you know we're not getting value for money or they're generally the big and so it's like oh what can we find out and it it's not really thought through sorry that that sounds yeah. very negative but it can I'm sure well, there are things um, that are well thought through but I see quite a lot of stuff that isn't I interviewed the CEO of uh, JISC oh, yeah. and uh, they were talking about their learning analytics uh, program and I suppose a lot of universities are sort of looking to um, dig into their data and spot warning signs about uh, when students are at risk of dropping out. And, and those kind of programs have happened for a long time, but I suppose it's another another way to flag that effectively and perhaps draw up, you know, the, these ones need the priority. Absolutely, it could um, be. Support systems around them and so on. Very done well mm. it could be really useful and and yes I think Jessica doing some really valuable work there definitely mm. but I think there's a lot more we could do as well that would sing to more of the and how do we support the learning interesting and um, so obviously you're a researcher as well and so you're in academia how have you found uh, or not found the impact of Brexit <laughs> fascinating um, we get quite a big percentage of our research funding from the European Union and so we have projects already that are funded from the European Union and that's secure but in applying for new projects we're thinking very carefully about how realistic our chances of success are officially the, the, the chances are supposed to be just the same mm. but our partners are human beings and some of them wonder if they should partner with a UK organisation because mm. if we're going to be leaving anyway what's the long-term prospects of that partnership if they're going to invest a lot of time in it so yeah it's a worry and also we have some funding 
due to start, that's European Regional Development Funding, and that was held up until recently when basically we have to get it all sorted out before the Chancellor's autumn statement, so that's put us under a bit of pressure. Yeah. So yeah, it does make a difference. And also, we want to work with our European colleagues because actually we've got a long history of working with them in the main. Yeah. Do you think you'll feel the pinch in terms of the skills gap if you don't have those colleagues? And Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, when I look around the colleagues I work with the most closely, I think I'm the only UK citizen, or I'm a rarity. Mm. Most of them are European Union. And what's um, the kind of contingency plan? Or is well, there <laughs> various contingency plans. I mean, to the extent of some of them looking for UK citizenship. Um, yeah. But obviously that's not a route for everybody. Mm. Um, and we have to think about it very carefully. Mm. It is a worry. I, I can't say other I, than that. I bet it is. Um, I don't know if you do any work with the UCL Institute of Robotics. No, perhaps we should. <laughs> <laughs> Only reason being just because they're moving to here east, aren't they? Yes, and that's then right. I, uh, yeah. I wondered if we'd be seeing you down that I corner of the I think list. it could be a very interesting way to go. But yeah. most of, well, all of what we've done so far with our work on AI hasn't involved robotics. Yeah, It's been much more system-level interventions. So, But I think the possibilities of robotics are very interesting. I think there's some problems with people's perceptions of yeah. what <laughs> robotics might do, uh, and, and particularly concerning rhetoric around the sort of automation in the workplace mm -hmm. and impact of that on jobs and on lots of ethical areas that yeah. clearly need some investigation. But I think the future will be one in which we are working with and alongside artificially intelligent partners, whether they're virtual or robots or whatever. And we'll need to get used to how we make that work. And um, do you kind of follow the the idea of the singularity and all of that? No, no, I, really. I, so I, used to, when I, I was at Mobile World Congress one year, and I remember I came across this. Uh, I think it was Time Magazine. There was an interview about Kurz. Kurz I'm not never sure how you pronounce it, Kurz or yes, uh, I'm not sure either. <laughs> uh, and um, I was like, wow, this is absolutely fascinating. And I just kind of got really. <laughs> I think it's a really fascinating. Because it's quite soon, isn't it, if it is... Kind of Absolutely, conce concept. And it takes me back to the days of studying philosophy when I did my original artificial intelligence degree. I think it's really important that we think about these mm. things. But personally, I don't see a moment when we'll really get general artificial intelligence because that would be hugely complicated from... I. A colleague once gave a lovely example, you know, here's my three-week-old son and he can do this and he can do that and he can do the other. If we have a generally artificially intelligent system, then they'll need to do all these things and the things that we can do when we're fully grown. And it is a lot, but there are huge leaps and bounds all the time. So yeah. I don't personally think will happen but I think it's important that the issues are raised and that they're discussed and we do start to think now about all the ethical implications yeah, of such yeah. a situation. It's not left as sort of shouty headlines and no. yeah, it doesn't uh, help. That's They don't help and they do a lot of scaremongering and I think also you know there's a whole 
history of sci-fi that makes us think in terms of robots taking our brains over or whatever, <laughs> running amok. Um, and then, so just moving sort of to internationally, but beyond uh, UK or the complicated setup in Europe at the moment to uh, sort of thinking internationally. Do you do collaborations with other mm. universities or especially thinking about Asia and China and great yes. to know some of your work that you do there as well? So I've worked with colleagues in China and Singapore and there is so much greater appetite for innovation in a lot of Asia. And, and India is amazing in terms of an appetite for innovation and a willingness to really knuckle down and make it happen that I don't see in the Western world in and the is same that way. in industry or in academia or the whole across the board? Across society. Yeah, interesting. I think it's... It's really interesting. I mean, there's a huge contrast, of course, between, say, a huge country like India or indeed like China and a small country like Singapore, say, where, you know, it's, it, it's so contained and very well-developed with great infrastructure for, yeah, you know, testing anything out and seeing if it works. So you've kind of got that. And actually, I find... My colleagues in, in Singapore are actually really forward thinking and open to ideas in a way that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. And yet, actually, they have quite a very um, specified society. So it's mm. quite interesting um, tensions. But yes, Asia, I think there's a huge amount happening. But also, sort of the Asia Pacific region as well. So, thinking about Australia. There's yeah. some interesting work going on in Australia as well, so it's not exclusive. You know, and is that mostly, hemisphere. again, around the artificial intelligence side? or Certainly in Australia there's some interesting AI work going on, but certainly a lot of investment in China and India in AI technologies. And I do worry about the UK mm -hmm. and the extent to which we will be able to compete because there's not the same level of investment in areas that I care about, so obviously I'm being very parochial, but in terms of education and what we could be doing, um, there's certainly more investment in places like the US and indeed the areas that we've already mentioned. So it's, it's interesting watching what's going on. And for those people listening, are there any other forward thinkers that you respect in this space or you recommend that they read or other resources that you really rate? Uh, in terms of AI? Uh, in terms of any of the aspects that you cover that just, I suppose, will help get those questions going? Or Yeah, getting people to mm. think. Gosh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure in terms of things that have been written. Sorry, that's not meant to be evasive. Yeah. Because a lot of the books that are written about innovation and AI are quite general. And a lot of the books that have been written about educational technology, I don't think... Are quite granular, do you think? Yeah. So I tend to think more in terms of people who speak. So um, in terms of looking at the kind of space of AI systems. There's somebody called Lewis Johnson, who was an academic and started his own business called Alello in the States. And they do some really interesting work with um, modeling 
that takes account of more than the cognitive processes of the learners they're working with and looks at things like cultural modeling. Um, very interesting work and uses some more innovative technologies to boot, so looking at VR. I mean, a lot of that work emanated from defense spending, mm -hmm. but that's not all they do now. And that's obviously a difficult area, depending on uh, how you feel about being involved in research that's funded for defense, yeah. but nevertheless, some very, very interesting work. And I, think, actually, I mean, I think some of the internet was developed out precisely, of yeah, so precisely. It's kind of so the history of innovating. It, from exactly. So you, you take that, and actually, Lewis is speaking this month at a conference in Buckingham. So people may be able to okay, catch yeah. up with him there and have a listen to the kind of thing that he's saying. Yeah. I think that would be. And are you kind of active good. on Twitter, or I don't do a lot of Twitter. I mean, I tweet occasionally. Yeah. Um, I find the risk that I run with Twitter is that I would get far too engrossed in it. So yeah. when I did write computer programs myself, I was one of those people who could spend the entire night programming and it's not good for you. No. And I know how easily I can get engaged by those things. So I try and be quite rationing in my use. about your history into getting into computer programming and yes. um, um, how that all came about as well. So. I didn't go to university when I left school. Yeah. Where I, did you go to school? I went to school at quite a lot of different schools, actually. It's quite interesting hearing all the debate about grammar schools at the moment. Yeah. I failed the 11 plus. Yeah. I don't think it was a particularly pleasant experience because everybody expected me to pass. And there's nothing like being made to feel a complete failure when you're 11. Wow. For colouring what happens next. And I certainly, at the age of 14, looked like I was going nowhere, would have no qualifications, and that would have been that. And I don't know quite what changed inside me, but something changed inside me. It's like, actually, I really don't want to do this. I want to do something with my life. And I had parents who cared enough to try and find me some help, though they didn't have much money, so it was quite hard. And then I managed to get decent, it was O-levels when I did them, and go to retro school that yeah very retro where I could do A levels but at that point I didn't go to university because I think I was still a bit lacking in confidence That's so amazing. went out and did had a whole other career in banking high street banking and then when I had my children thought I think I'd like to get a degree so I went off and did computer so science and you. artificial intelligence when I was 38 wow and ha what what made you choose that this sounds so glib but it's not. I literally threw the prospectus up in the air for Sussex University, which was the only university I could attend. I went to Sussex University. Practically. I knew I was going to apply for economics because I'd got banking exams and I knew a bit about it. And then I thought, I'm going to go for something totally different and threw it up in the air and it landed on AI. And I started That's reading right. it. I was completely engaged, totally fascinated. Funny. I was refused a place for economics by the man who then became the vice-chancellor who I worked for as pro-vice-chancellor for three years and I never stopped reminding him of the fact that he'd not offered me a place in and, economics. And what was his name? Um, Alastair Smith. Yeah, I think he was still there. When yeah. you, mm. And then I went along for my interview for AI and met an amazing man called Aaron Sloman who's emeritus professor at Birmingham 
who just inspired me to go on and take the course and it was just fantastic I you know it was just something I'd never done before I was lucky enough to have the A-levels with good grades that meant that I could get in I loved it absolutely loved it and so did you live in Brighton and I didn't I commuted from where I lived which was near Hastings and it was hard I had two very young children I would often work at night because that was the only time when I could get the peace and quiet I relied a lot on friends and family to help me with the children because obviously they needed to be at university for part of the time. Fantastic experience, but I wouldn't have got there without a system that encouraged people who are not traditional age students to, to go to university and do a qualification. And it has changed my life in a really positive way. And then I did a PhD and loved it ever since. <laughs> so. And so did you use the computing, uh, so the programming, sorry, um, did you use that or did you go straight into... No, I basically, so when I did my degree, I did a lot of programming and then for my PhD, I built a piece of software, so I programmed that and then I taught programming for a while. This is going way back, so not claiming to be spot on now. I still think that way. But I don't yeah, code yeah, anymore. Yeah. And again, I don't because I just know how I get completely lost and yeah. I wouldn't get other things done. Um, it's I, I have said when I retire, I'm going to go back to it because I do really enjoy it. Yeah. Do your kids code? No. No. One is a financial analyst <laughs> and the other is a, a policy officer, science communicator. Mm. So they both do quite detailed analytical jobs. Yeah but not in technology. Amazing. That's a fantastic story. I love that. So it should encourage anybody to not think about you can be not doing well at 14 and you can go off and you can change your life if you're lucky. And uh, make you think about uh, grammar schools as well. Indeed. (laughs) So I don't know if you'll be able to talk about this, but I was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about the, um, the project that you were mentioning you know, earlier on with regards to waiting for the funding. Yes. So this project is looking to um, develop a shared space, both physical and virtual, for researchers such as ourselves, but a whole raft of different researchers with different expertise, edtech startups and educators to work together. The idea being that we want to help edtech startups to develop products that are what teachers actually need, what teachers want, and that are based on good evidence that we've got, not just about how technology can work in education, but what we know about how people learn and what we're learning from things like neuroscience that we didn't know before. So trying to help get that as part of their repertoire of design thinking, get the teachers engaged as well to help them be part of the design thinking and also to help edtechs design effective evaluations so that they can say, yes, I can show you my product does X, Y, and Z, so that they can actually look at what they want the product to be able to do, what the aim is, and we can help them design an evaluation that will help them target those things more effectively. Because for many people starting a company they don't have research skills why would they Mm. so we can provide training and we can provide advice but we're also wanting to encourage researchers and educators who've got a good idea for a product 
to come and join and think about turning their good idea into a product. So there will be business advice as well as research advice. And we're partnering with Nesta and with EdTech UK and with F6S. So it's so exciting. I really can't wait to get started on it. But the whole European funding thing has been has held it up to date. But we're really yeah. hopeful of starting in November. That cash to the cheque to... Yeah, exactly, to get started would be great. It really would. And so for those startups, will there be a kind of um, an application process? And yes. Would there be an entry fee because obviously no. they're accessing the expertise? Or how does... No, so it's, it's all funded all from... Funding. I, I mean, I think the funding's for three years in order yeah. to ensure sustainability. We'll have to come up with some other kind of funding model, but... We're thinking about that and thinking about which way to go. The one thing I know for sure is startups don't have money. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we need to think of other ways of, of, of working with them or other ways of getting other interested organisations to help pay. So we're looking at that at the moment, yeah. but we do have three years where it will be funded. And it, will it be specifically for schools or will it also be for further and higher education Absolutely as well? further and higher education as yeah. well, definitely across the board. And do you already have schools sort of lined up on your advisory board or that kind of thing? We have a really good advisory board in place, but also some processes to think about how best we get schools on board. I mean, see, fortunately, with the Institute of Education, we've got lots of yeah. contacts yeah. with schools. So, But we're always open to offers if anybody's listening <laughs> and they want to get involved. Yeah, so I'm that's sure it. they will. But we're really keen on finding ed tech startups who know they could benefit from some kind of research assistance and that we think are at the stage where we can see how we could help them because that's the point when they'll get the most out of it. So it's and it not might, really early stage, it's much more... It could be early stage if they're really thinking about, say, you know, I've got an idea that's to support language learning. You know, we could provide some expertise around, well, what do we know about language learning? So mm -hmm. that's a bit of a broad, high-level example. But I think it may be for some people who will say, great, you know, look at being part of the virtual community and then in six months, let's think about bringing you in to the physical group as well so that you can we can be sort of trying to show you some research while you're part of the virtual community but then you get the kind of intense mm -hmm. help when you come in when you've got to the stage where we think there's the most benefit to be had so it's not ex yeah early stage could be right for some part of engagement if you see what I mean and will that be a sort of three month program or shorter what, three day what we've said is three to six months depending okay. on the needs of the individual company yeah. so we will have staggered cohorts of people starting yeah. but I don't think it's possible to say you only need three months yeah and that's and it and that's it I think so a longer engagement but that's part of the reason for having the virtual community as well so that you don't just leave you you know you stay part of this community and you still have your mentor and and will that be open for international ed tech startups or at the moment because the, the funding is coming through the gla it has to be people whose company are registered in london oh, okay yeah but we are hopeful that this might be something that could be considered to be rolled out at a national yep. international level okay interesting so test mm. it see how it goes i'm i am very excited about it and what, what, so what's the kind of estimated kickoff date, do you think? If, <laughs> if we, we get, a finger in the air. you know, the right wind and the yeah. right waves and we get everything in place, I hope that we will start in November. 
and that'll be a preparation period so launching around February it would okay, be great yeah. to launch around that but yeah. I think we might just miss that but yeah you know so we'd be welcoming our first cohort of people probably mm. at the beginning of February that's yeah my best guess at the moment very exciting well uh so i suppose anyone listening who's yeah get in touch with me definitely okay fantastic so i'll I'll include your uh contact contact details details. yeah do please i think that's about everything so we better go to our meeting we should uh, yeah so (laughs) thank you very much rose my pleasure good to talk to you thank you thanks thanks for listening everyone if you enjoyed that please do feel free to drop uh, a review for the edtech podcast either on uh, itunes or whichever platform you're listening through next week we have education change makers actually really on the podcast so uh, in the meantime don't forget to tweet your questions for the edtech podcast live panel uh, hashtag edtechpod how can we improve the dialogue between ed and tech and have a fantastic week